Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to this latest special edition of the Did You Read podcast from the Times Opinion team. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times' Opinion Pages, and this week we're looking back on the year through the cartoons of our award-winning cartoonist Peter Brooks. So joining me is Peter Brooks, and what we're going to try and do is we've got six of his uh, best cartoons, or six of some of his best cartoons from the year, and we're going to try and explain what those cartoons are, and then Hugo Rifkind and Jenny Russell, two Times columnists, are going to respond to them, and we're try and capture the essence of the year that we've just been through. So Peter, you've chosen a first cartoon on the issue that started the year with David Cameron's speech on Europe. Yes, and the cartoon itself is is not one specific event, although it was probably triggered by some uh, particular news event that that, uh, takes in Europe. But for me, it's really a backdrop to the whole year and the whole decade and the whole century, seems to me, and to Europe. And it's just just the idea of using a well-known image by M.C. Escher, which is um, an image of someone walking around um, what seems to be a, a building with stairs that are going up, but in fact... They don't go up. They just go round and round in circles. And it's the idea of the UKIP-type, Tory backbencher-type, anti-Europe person uh, banging the drum of no, which is what it says on everything. Um, And uh, I'm hardly fed up with it. (laughs) (laughs) And for those uh, listening um, to this podcast and wanting to see uh, the cartoons we're talking about well hopefully for some people they'll be embedded in this podcast for other people we'll be able to look at them in the iPad edition, the Christmas Day iPad edition of The Times and other Times subscribers can see the cartoons at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central but Jenny Russell, Europe was the issue that David Cameron hoped he was putting away by making this speech, promising this referendum in January. But here we are in December and the Tory party is still talking about Europe and probably isn't much closer to resolving the issue. No, I think that's right. But no Tory leader has managed to put the Europe issue to bed for 30 years. And so Cameron was probably um, just quite wrong to suppose that he could because his trouble is that every single time he makes a concession to the anti-Europeans, they think, hooray, let's push a little further. So he hoped that by promising a referendum, he would postpone the whole issue about having to talk about it, instead of which it's just given an extra fillip to UKIP and it's made all the people in the Tory party think that actually be better either to renegotiate the terms entirely to be totally in Britain's favour or get out. It's um, given them added enthusiasm. And, and Hugo, you've written uh, 
shall I say, slightly negatively about UKIP in the last year. And UKIP isn't just about Europe, is it? And if David Cameron thought he was going to deal with UKIP by making a promise upon Europe, then, then he was mistaken. Well, I think UKIP is sort of becoming about Europe again. You know, it did sort of for, for a while, UKIP was basically the anti-gay marriage party. Um, but now it seems to be becoming kind of sort of more more Europe focused. What's interesting about this cartoon? I'm not I'm not going to say it's brilliant. I could say that every time it's brilliant. Can we just take that as a given? But what's interesting is, is the idea of going round and round without really getting anywhere. Now I wrote a column. I think it might might have been before January. I'm not sure. Talking about there, there was a lot of clamour for a European referendum, like there always is. And I wrote a column pointing out that basically there was no reason to have one now because nothing had changed. People were just digging up an old fight again. Europe's in massive transition and not there yet. And we'd have no idea what we were having a referendum about, whether we were or were not going to be a part of. Now, what's fascinating is, despite that backdrop, over the course of this year, the No campaign has actually advanced enormously because, I mean, there is probably going to be a referendum, uh, assuming Cameron gets back in again, and really on the basis of nothing except for angry people. So I think, um, you know... Is, no- is, is, is that really fair, though, because... Europe is so important to so much of our national life in terms of we can't control immigration properly because of uh, European laws. We have our agricultural and fisheries policies dictated by Europe. And no one, I think, under the age of 55 has ever been asked in a referendum whether they want to be part of this organisation. So well, but, I mean, that's, that's no isn't more... that fair that it should, people should be asked whether they want to belong to Europe? At some point, yes, but as we don't know what we're going to be part of or not part of, you know, the massive changes in the... In the it's, it's one of these rare times... But the, vote, have, the vote well, won't happen till 2017, I think, on David well, Cameron's timetable. Even so, we're still not quite sure what it's going to be. I mean, it's one of the rare occasions where we have a leader line in the paper that I actually wholeheartedly agree with, <laughs> um, which is it's this idea... I mean, you know, God knows what's going to happen in the Eurozone, Whether to what extent they're going to have to have further political union to make the currency union work, or if it does work, or if it falls apart, or if countries get kicked out or whatever. Uh, and so we're sort of voting blind. So on when would you have the referendum? You could, you could make these arguments. Later, Tim. <laughs> later. Have it later. 2022, 2027? Just, just later. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, our second cartoon that you've chosen for us, um, Peter, is about another subject that potentially was going to rip the Conservative Party apart, gay marriage. Well, it possibly still could. I don't know. But this is one instance, it seems to me, where David Cameron has actually gone a little bit out on a limb as far as the Tories are concerned, uh, too far as far as a lot of backbenchers are concerned. And I feel that um, he's been reasonably brave in, in this instance. Uh, but I've got him here uh, with uh, other members of uh, the supporters of, of, of gay marriage within the Cabinet um, as the Westminster Village people. And uh, they're not proud and gay well they're not gay but but they're not they're not being proud about it necessarily because they're also in the cartoon because they're also extremely anxious about the reaction of their own party and um, hence the way they're looking and perspiring rather heavily in the, in the cartoon Hugo this has been a difficult issue for uh, David Cameron this year but when history looks back again on this government's record will it be gay marriage, hitting the 0.7% target for international aid, lifting 
number of millions of people out of the income tax system. There have been some pretty significant moral achievements of this government. Oh, yes. And I think the the first of that, well, I think two of those are more significant. G- gay marriage and AIDS are more significant. Mm. And um, gay marriage particularly, I think Cameron was, I mean, I think it's incredibly brave. I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for it. I think it was probably far braver than he intended to be, in fact. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's, it's best understood along with AIDS as I see it as a sort of generational revolution in the Conservative Party. As in, it's a kind of it's Cameron's generation, sort of you know, sort of stamping the party with their morality, and um, and you have the I mean, you, you had sort of com- completely appalled reaction normally from, not largely from a sort of older section of the party, that was saying this is just simply not conservative. This is the opposite of conservative, and the way I mean, I thought Cameron's the statement where he said I, I, I'm I'm what is it? I support gay marriage not not in spite of the fact that I'm a conservative, but because I'm a conservative was a really neat sort of. Encapsulation of his sort of the reevaluated notion of what conservatism is. So I think it, I think it really will be his legacy. And Jenny, do, do you think it helped or hurt the Conservative Party? Because yes, in the eyes of perhaps a lot of liberal younger people, it made David Cameron look like the modern Conservative he always set out to be. But it also showed a lot of division in the Conservative Party, with a lot of backbenchers very unhappy. And in that sense, did it retoxify the Tory image in the, in the eyes of others? I think it might have done the short term, but I think almost everyone's forgotten about it now, except the people who are opposed to it in the first place. And I found this a really curious issue because I come basically from the left, um, but I have a lot of sympathy often with Conservatives who don't like change. This issue, I never heard a single coherent argument against gay marriage from its opponents, except except the Christian one, saying that God created a marriage to be for a man and a woman. But absolutely nothing else that they said made any sense at all. It was just a deep, deep prejudice against gay people. And I do think that Cameron's right to say that actually in a society where what we are concerned about are the fraying of bonds between people and we want reciprocity and we want people to love one another and stay together and care for one another and be responsible for one another, um, then gay marriages can only add to the institution of marriage. So I think it's going—it's a great move that he will be remembered for in the same way as I think Tony Blair really changed the atmosphere, um, the, the social atmosphere around gay people. And I, this is another step towards it. And um, I, I think it will do him nothing but good because, as Hugo says, it's a generational thing. I don't think anybody the, under the age of 40 understands why there's a fuss about this. And, and, and one person, Peter Brooks, who seems to recognise that perhaps social and cultural attitudes to gay people are changing is the new pope. And the, the change at the Vatican is the is the third cartoon you've, you've chosen for us. Yes, um, the event of um, Pope Benedict's resignation was one of those moments in a newsroom where you've got a very significant event. And for me as a cartoonist, uh, it's something really to get your teeth into, if you like. And I came up with a, a thought that um, the actual resignation of a pope has happened only in 1294... 1415 and now 2013. So I have two priests um, walking across the floor in St. Peter's saying 1294, 1415, 2013. This is becoming a bit of a trend. (laughs) And the whole point of it is really to show the deeply conservative nature of the Catholic Church and how slowly... 
things. Because could learn a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How slowly things move. Um, and, uh, Will you miss Pope Benedict? Because you, you, you did do some pretty strong cartoons about him over the uh, Oh, certainly did, yes. yes uh, and particularly in, in relation to his policy on uh, contraception and AIDS. And, um, yeah, I, I won't miss him in the sense that I think it's uh, a good thing that he's no longer there. But uh, that said, um, who knows what the future holds in terms ha, ha, of... Have you drawn the new Pope Francis yep, yet? Yeah, yep, so. a couple of times. Uh, and he's setting a tone and um, a, a, a way forward that is uh, headlong, really. <laughs> it's, it, really is, uh, it really is making some sort of pace. But there again... You just don't know. I think you wrote a very good piece about how it's still a deeply conservative um, organisation and mm. uh, it probably doesn't mean you know, wholesale change no at all. No gay marriage coming up soon. No. <laughs> no. So, so, no. so, Jenny, what do we think of the new Pope then? The um, Time magazine in America have made him their person of the, of the year. And there is something, you know, my image, I think, of the year was that moment when in St. Peter's Square he embraced that very badly disfigured man, the kind of man that society would perhaps shun because of his... Does indeed um, shun. Even his own family uh, shun him, Absolutely. And, and there was the Pope, embraced him, kissed him, held him for a sustained period. And there have been so many acts from the new Pope Francis that seem to s- capture that basic message of love and compassion that should characterise the church. But he is actually still doctrinally quite similar to... Benedict, some others say, um, and some Catholics, of course, will say quite right too. Um, who is this new Pope? Is he going to disappoint? Is he going to continue to delight? Or do we just have to wait and see? Oh, I'm sure it'd be sensible to say the last, but, I, but there's no question that he's made an enormous impact on people who are neither Christian nor Catholic. That's me, by the way. Um, and, that, and that's what I think is really distinctive about him, that he actually seems to be behaving in the way that um, Jesus did in the early um, stages of his career, shocking people by making even those who are considered outcasts feel loved and accepted. I think the man who was hugged said, um, I felt as if I was in paradise. Because mm. uh, he was held for an extended period of time, uh, more than a minute, and the Pope was stroking him and stroking his head and hugging him. And he'd clearly never had that sense of acceptance from anybody. And he really is a very disfigured person. And lots of people are terrified of touching him because they don't know whether what he has is contagious. And the Pope had no idea whether that was the case or not, and yet he still did it. And the fact that he is um, eschewing all the luxuries that normally go with being a pope and that he is saying explicitly that the church is there for the poor and so on, I think that's a lot more important than the t- doctrinal um, purity which he which he may uphold because I think if the, if the church is for anything, it is about the fact that... Y- God loves all of you and that every human being matters, no matter what the judgments of, um, uh, of of the external society say about you. And that's coming through so strongly. And it's perhaps it's a nice thing for all of us, since we wish to have someone somewhere in the world to admire, that just as Mandela dies, um, along comes the Pope to be, mm. again, a flawed person. He's not no, no one's going to agree with everything that he does, but somebody who's actually trying to lead a good life mm. with strong moral principles. Not um, many of those around. And, and, and contradictory, um, Hugo Rifkind, in this message of poverty and simplicity to so much of the where the world is at the moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sort of agree with you know everything Jenny said. I was. Um, oh, that's lovely. Should we yeah. do this more often? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Must have happened before. Um, but you know, I mean, I was um, I I was uh, I was raised I was raised as a Jew, and to the extent that I'm, I have any religion now, I'm I'm still effectively Jewish, I suppose. Uh, although my family might be quite shocked to hear me say that. But um, uh, and and I mean, I've, I've always um, you know, there's this weird you know, having nonetheless grown up in a Christian country, and I went to went to church at school, you know, twice a week and stuff. So I'm pretty well sort of, you know, saturated in Christianity. The paradox of Christianity as practice has always bothered me um, in that it's basically, it's supposed to be a religion, a religion of humility and all about the, the poor and the meek and etc. And yet you have the Vatican <laughs> and you have Lambeth Palace. And, um, yeah. and what's interesting at the moment, I think, is that there are actually similarities between the new Pope and the new Archbishop of Canterbury. They're sort of austerity religious figures. You know, it's very much a sort of a concentration on the on the poor, on the weak, on the idea of the church as a social conscience. And I've always been really confused by the notion that the church could be anything other than a social conscience. Yes. So I, I do sort of generally approve of this, although, you know, I mean, they do still live in palaces, so let's not get carried away. Yes. So, so when Justin Welby has moved out of Lambeth Palace or, or turned it into some sort of credit union to rival Wonga, you'll be, th- you'll be really really think the game has changed. Do you know, I think he wants to. Yeah, he does. I don't think he will, but I think he wants to. He, dri- <laughs> he drives that tiny little car that uh, instead of going in the Pope Mobile, yeah. and uh, he lives a pretty frugal life. So, yeah, he still is in a palace. But yeah. And I Justin Welby goes jogging. We've had pictures of Justin Welby jogging in the Times. You haven't yet set that to a cartoon. Not yet. yet, Peter. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jenny Russell. I, I want my Christian leaders to live in palaces. I don't mind if they're very sparsely <laughs> furnished palaces. They can just be like monasteries with you know, stone floors and a simple mattress. But I think the grandeur of the buildings, that's fine. That's appropriate. You want an otherness. Yes, or, I think so. Otherworldliness yeah. and, 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 and they can think great thoughts just as you do when you walk into a cathedral. I think you think greater thoughts on the whole. But you can still have uh, St. Paul, I mean, St. Peter's, say, in the Vatican. Exactly. He, and he, but he doesn't necessarily have to... You know, he sort of indulge in and that. velvet and stuff. Yeah, but, he, but, but I think he can still be in the environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay by me, <laughs> as the non-Catholic who isn't voting. But there we are. Well, if uh, that was a, an uplifting story um, of the year, the, the new Pope's impact, perhaps the most depressing story of 2013 that's rumbled on and on and on has been the tragic events and the huge loss of life in Syria. And that uh, is your fourth choice for us, Peter. Yes, indeed. I mean, I mentioned Europe being a sort of backdrop to the year and uh, beyond. Uh, But, of course, Syria is as well, as you mentioned. Uh, And I've done lots of cartoons about Syria. And one of the depressing aspects of... um, there are wonderful aspects of being a cartoonist, but there are some pretty depressing ones as well. And that is you can never really capture the horror of certain events and certain um, trains of events. And Syria is one of them that, you know, whatever you do and you have to do and you're, you're, you're impelled to do a lot on Syria, um, you can't have ever match the horror of, of, of the events. So what you do tends 
quite often to have to be relatively brutal if you can make it that way. Um, and there was a story beginning of the year uh, where Mrs. Assad was supposed to be pregnant again. In fact, it turned out not to be the case, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and so the image was of Assad himself as a pregnant uh, man, and the um, bump, if you like, is in fact uh, in the form of a skull and giving birth to... I mean, it sounds rather pat and obvious, but, you know, um, I meant it. No, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful image. And just just to remind people, if you want to see any of the cartoons that we are actually see them properly in that we're discussing in this podcast, do go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and you can and you can see the drawings that uh, peter is talking about jenny russell in iraq we saw the cost the enormous cost of intervention in syria we've seen the enormous cost of non-intervention haven't we yes and i think perhaps the horrible conclusion that one has to draw is that perhaps there's nothing much one can do about people's desire to kill one another and fight for power. I mean, the world is just such an appallingly complicated place that for us to go into other societies and think that we can somehow work out um, who the people are who will end up um, running this country in a way that uh, we would approve of um, without wanting to kill the other side is is, um, an insight perhaps beyond any outsiders at all. It seems a terrible thing to be saying. I've, I was I, I was never in favour of the intervention in Iraq. Um, I was in favour of the intervention in Libya, which now looks like an almighty mess. Um, I hoped that somebody could do something to stop Assad. But um, I'm coming to the grim conclusion that older I get that um, horror is an, is an inevitable part of living on the planet, mm. which is a really... It's not a very cheering Christmas message. Um, and at this Christmas, humanitarian organisations are very worried that we are on the brink of a huge humanitarian tragedy in Syria yeah, because so there aren't humanitarian corridors to get the aid in. Yes. And potentially millions of people are very hungry this Christmas in that in So, that so the, one, the one thing country. I think that we can be doing is giving money to the organisations who are trying to get supplies to people while we, while we sit here feeling so helpless and hopeless and wanting to avert our eyes from the horror. And Hugo Rifkin, there obviously was a deal of sorts in that um, Russia and America agreed for chemical weapons inspectors mm. to go in, and at least the chemical weapons have been disarmed, but actually the conventional warfare goes on. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it was a slightly bogus deal. I mean, I think if your family are getting killed, I don't think you much care whether they're getting killed by con- sort of conventional weapons or, or, or chemical weapons. I mean, I, I was... Um, I was against uh, intervention in Syria. I've been sort of consistently against intervention in Syria. I was against intervention in Libya, and I was against intervention in Iraq for the simple reason that I don't think it works normally. I think it 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 generally take uh, Western intervention has a habit of taking a a horrible failing state and turning it into a failed state, mm-hmm. and I and I felt very strongly that that's what would happen in Syria. That's what's happened in Syria anyway which has sort of given me pause. It's hard to see what we could possibly have done that could have made Syria worse. We still don't seem to have formulated a concept of a different sort of intervention. When we talk about intervention in a country that's racked in war, what it means, what it meant in Syria was, let's go and bomb Assad. Mm. Let's go and destroy the apparatus of the regime. 
and the idea of a humanitarian intervention that really is a humanitarian intervention that concentrates on, you know, safe corridors and only concentrates on safe corridors, that enforces a, a no-fly zone and means it and doesn't use it as an excuse to bomb other stuff, mm. is just sort of outside our, our political language. We never quite get there. And so, and I think everyone slightly used the deal on chemical weapons as an, as an excuse to stop thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And, um, and I, don't, it's, I think it's, it, it can't rest here. Peter Brooks? My feeling about... Um, what Hugo and Jenny have both said, intervention in the end probably never works or never seems to work because take Afghanistan, for example. Mm -hmm. Going into Afghanistan, most people seem to be behind that one. They weren't behind Iraq. Um, uh, they they were behind Afghanistan either. It's well, amazing arrogance of us to go and think that we could tell somebody else how to rethink their society. Oh, no, it wasn't. That wasn't the reason for going in. The reason for going in was really to... Oh, you mean get, just the, the temporary short mission the, of, yeah, of getting, uh, get, uh, getting, 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 rid, getting rid of Osama bin Laden? Within a minute or two, it became... Um, and we yeah. had to reshape yeah. Afghanistan. That's exactly, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. That's precisely my point, that it, it becomes something else. And the arrogance, as you quite rightly say, of thinking you can run somebody else's society. Mm. And this last week, Cameron saying, uh, mission accomplished. I just thought that was just outlandish. OK, yeah. he didn't actually say the words. He but was he asked. He agreed yeah. with the words. And, well, come on. Now, it was Ed Miliband in his Commons Tactics, which is credited with frustrating Britain's intervention in Syria. And for our fifth cartoon... Peter Brooks, you've chosen an image of Ed Miliband when he probably made one of the most important political interventions of 2013. Yeah, uh, and, and that was at uh, the Labour Party conference where he announced a price freeze on, on, on gas and um, gas prices which were going through the, and are going through the roof. And it was immediately uh, pounced upon as being unworkable because all the utilities, all the companies have to do is put the price up before the freeze or put the price up after the freeze. And therefore, there was a lot of, um, you know, um, hoo-hawing about, you know, whether this thing could possibly work. But say it doesn't, he still managed to actually put a marker down where everyone now, uh, Tories, um, have been desperately trying to find their own way of doing what he did. And so my cartoon is just of... It was one of those immediate things that one had to do very, very quickly after the speech on the day. Um, and it was an echo of a famous gas ad 20 years or so ago uh, where people hold up their thumbs and... Uh, jet of, um, you know, um, flame comes out, comes out of the top of it. I can't remember the line now. Uh, but it was using that motif. And uh, because... I, because oh, you're in control, I think. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, you're in control. Yeah, yes, that's right. And uh, my <laughs> the implication being that actually, because of what I've just said, he probably isn't in control. <laughs> and I always draw um, uh, Miliband as Wallace of Wallace and Gromit, and uh, Ed Balls is usually Gromit. And uh, in this case, plasticine melts... And, and uh, my feeling was that, you know, this isn't a sustainable policy uh, and, and, and he's melting. Uh, now, now, I know the answer to this question because I work with you every day, but Ed Miliband, I think, gave his speech, gives his speech to the Labour conference early afternoon. And so yeah. what do you do? Do you proceed, write, produce a cartoon that you've got on stock or do you on a big day like that where you 
don't know what's going to happen. You have to wait till three, four o'clock until you actually produce your cartoon for the following day's times. Uh, well, what happens is you can't work it out beforehand, uh, generally, because in this instance, say, you know, the policy was announced uh, as he was speaking. It wasn't leaked beforehand. No, no, one, knew, yeah. no one knew about yeah. this one. And, um, and that's the beauty of it from my point of view, because, you know, the adrenaline gets going and uh, you have to, you know, standing start at three or four o'clock and you've only got two or three hours to do it in. Is quite motivating. <laughs> and uh, only in the last week, I remember you were working on one cartoon, and then we learnt about David Cameron's mission accomplished remarks from Afghanistan in the early mid-afternoon, and you scrapped what you were doing, and you, and you did another cartoon. How often do you have to? How many cartoons have you produced that don't see the light of day? Quite a few. Qu yeah. Quite a few, really. I mean, events like that don't happen too often because the the thing that you're scrapping your existing cartoon for has to be that much more important to you in that particular case about Afghanistan it was mm. and it made what I was doing redundant and therefore you've got to react to you know the news worthiness of, mm. of, of things that uh, you know uh, are thrown in your way really. Hugo Rifkin, Ed Miliband made that intervention that Peter's cartoon captured and we talk perhaps too much as columnists about the cuts because out there it is the cost of living, it's the rising price yeah. of electricity and food and travel. That's what's really worrying the public and Ed Miliband resonated. Well, I mean, Ed Miliband, he's very, he's very good at this stuff. He's very good at finding out what the issue is and saying something about it that, that sounds good. I often think he'd make an excellent opinion columnist or perhaps a leader writer <laughs> um, or he'd be really, really good at working in a think tank. I mean, his... Um, his 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 delivery and his proposals themselves are often more problematic, but he's always, you know, he always, he, always, he always gets you thinking, and he's actually been very good at kind of shaping the direction of kind of political debate over the course of the last year. What's interesting, particularly about his him on um, energy prices, is it illustrates what I think is a a sort of growing trend that that the Conservatives haven't yet quite come to grips with, which is a a quite large public loss of trust. In privatisation, which of of utilities of things generally, which goes hand in hand with the sort of rising living costs, people just think, well, times are tough, and the people who are in charge of the stuff that I need to buy are not on my side. And um, and I mean, Ed Miliband has a you know he has a a vision for what he ought to do about this. It might be unworkable, it might be nonsense, but at least he's got one. Mm. You know. uh, and Jenny Russell, did Ed Miliband establish himself in 2013 in more people's mind as a Prime Minister-in-waiting because of initiatives like this? Well, undoubtedly he established in people's minds the idea that the Labour Party was on their side and had some practical suggestions about how things could be changed and was empathising with them on all those scores of um, are you on the side of people like me, the Labour Party shot ahead. A lot of people still have um, great reservations about whether he looks like a future Prime Minister, much as they like these policies. I um, thought you were going to say whether he looks like Wallace, because he really does. <laughs> yeah. I think he's get, getting better looking, actually. I think you may, this may get a bit outdated. Where I think Peter was wrong... Never. In his, Never. In, no, I always <laughs> where, where I think Peter was, was, was wrong in the cartoon was the idea that um, 
entertaining as it was, was the idea that Ed was, would be melting as a consequence. Because actually, when you look at the policy, it's not half as silly as it looked in the first place. Um, because the price freeze is while they work out how to restructure and re-regulate the energy market. So it's not the case of just a price freeze and then the companies can sit there um, counting their money and making sure that they can whack the prices up at the end. They actually want to change the structure of the market. What worries me, though, about this policy is that I think that um, Labour is having tremendous success at the moment with making people think about the cost of living. I do think that in a year's time, when we're six months from an election, when the economy will be looking a lot stronger, then an awful lot of people may be less worried about the cost of living and more seduced by the Tory message, which is going to be actually fundamentally the economy is going to a glorious future. The pain is over. The sacrifice was worth it. Come with us to the sunlit uplands. Finally, and I'm afraid we've already, this is our longest podcast ever, so we're just going to have to leave you sharing this final image with us and we're going to have to not be able to have time to discuss it. But um, the year ended with the death of Nelson Mandela, um, Peter, and one of your cartoons didn't just grace the Times, it really went viral across the, across the world. Describe it to us. It's, um, it sounds um, very corny, I'm afraid to say, when I actually read it out. It's lovely when you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those, uh, again, uh, almost totally visual cartoons with just one word, which is release. And it's the idea of going through the pearly gates um, you know, with the trigger obviously having been going, uh, being released uh, in uh, 1990, I think it was, wasn't it? And uh, just an echo of that particular moment. Um, and obviously, um, when you're drawing for an event like this, it has to be incredibly simple and direct. And, uh, you know, if you can make it so reasonably monumental, yeah. if you can have reasonable. Well, th- this one worked. And, um, it was very powerful. And there is another cartoon that you drew um, for uh, Mandela's funeral, and that and all of the cartoons that we've been talking about and some of the links to the articles that we've been discussing, Times subscribers can access at thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral. But we have more than run out of time today, so Peter Brooks, thank you very much, Hugo Rifkin, Jenny Russell, and also my producer, Dave Maguire. We will be back next week uh, with David Aronovich, uh, Roger Boys and Anne Treneman for a look forward to 2014. Until then, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.